During this week, I asked a few people, if you were to teach one sermon, what would you teach on? And so I got different answers back, but it came down to one thing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I've been to church many times. People would ask me, well, what did you learn at church today? And I'd be like, oh man, I don't know. It was so good when I was there, but what did I learn? And so today, I have no doubt by the time we're done, you're going to know about Jesus. It is about Jesus. This church is about Jesus. When I first came to Calvary Chapel years and years ago, um, I was like, man, they talk a lot about Jesus. They talk a lot, a lot about Jesus. And so that's what we're going to learn about today. So we'll start there. What does the name Jesus mean? It is the Greek word for the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew. The Greek is Jesus. So what does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saved. God saved. It means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah means self-existent, eternal being. So Jehovah, God, saved. Salvation, saved, past tense. So who is Jesus? He is God, and he saved me. So whenever you hear that name Jesus, don't just read over it. There's a meaning behind it, especially in the Jewish culture. Names had a big meaning. They named a child based on what they saw or what they thought about the child, the name that the Lord gave them. So Jesus, the God who saved me. But that brings us to an interesting question. What am I saved from? What am I saved from? Well, we go to the Word of God because he's the one that tells us. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Wrath could be translated punishment, anger, or vengeance. We are not appointed to God's punishment, anger, vengeance, wrath. But instead, to obtain salvation, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's salvation one way, and that's through Jesus. And so, we've been saved from God's wrath. We need to remember that. As the world gets darker and darker, I've not been appointed unto it. I've been appointed to salvation, not God's judgment. So why the focus on Jesus? Why would people say, well, you should teach on Jesus? Because one day, whether you believe it or not, you will stand before Jesus. And you will give an account to this one question. Found in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. This is the children's ministry verse. This is where everything we do in children's ministry is based on this verse. He, who's he? Jesus, who is the God that saved me, said to them, the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? As I come here every day, that is my focus, that the children and the parents and grandparents would know who Jesus is. That is the sole goal, that we would introduce them to Jesus. So, isn't it enough to believe in God? Do I really need to know who Jesus is? Well, God gives us that answer too. James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So even the demons believe that there's God. Matter of fact, they believe more than us because they know it. And then in 1 John 5, verse 11, this is God's testimony about Jesus. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. God couldn't be any more clear in his testimony about Jesus. 
That is what we're here to do. That is what we're going to go over. We are here to give a testimony of who Jesus Christ is. It's what God the Father did. It's what we're called to do. It's the purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit is that we would give a witness. So, it is not enough to believe in God because one day you will stand before Jesus and give an account to the question in Mark 8, 29. He, who is he? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God and he saved me. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I have a question. I pray that you would be honest because we are in church. God's always listening to what you say anyways. But especially here, you should be honest, right? He will forgive you if you lie because we've all lied and we're all liars. So might as well just be honest. How many of you have read the Bible from cover to cover without skipping any sections, including the book that we are currently in as a family, which happens to be First Chronicles, with all those lists of names? How many? Raise your hand if you've read the Bible cover to cover. All right. Awesome. If you have not read the full counsel of God for yourself, I cannot encourage you enough to do so. Because then you will be able to give a full and complete answer to who Jesus is. The entire Bible is a progressive revelation of who Jesus is. From Genesis, where we learn that Jesus is my creator. Jesus created me. I was created by Jesus, it says in Colossians, to live for Jesus. That is the purpose of my life. In Exodus, I learned that Jesus is my exit. He is my only way out of death and sin. I will die in my sins if it's not for Jesus. There's one exit plan. There's only plan A. There's no other one. In Leviticus, I learned that Jesus is my sacrifice. What do people do with their sins? You're in your sin and your guilt unless you have a sacrifice for it. Something has to pay the price for sin. It'll either be you or it'll be Jesus. And so Jesus is my final sacrifice once and for all time in the book of Leviticus. In the book of Numbers, I learn that Jesus is my rock. Anthony did an amazing job on Wednesday of going over trials. What are trials there for? When those trials come, I'm a mess if it's not for Jesus, that I can build my life upon the rock. I know quite a few of you in here, or at least some, have cancer, maybe even recently. And so I need Jesus. He's got to be my rock in those times. I can't just think positive. It doesn't work. Jesus has to be the rock. In Deuteronomy, I learned that Jesus is my law. He's the perfect law of love. That is what the whole book's about. It's about loving. How do I love God like he loves me? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? I can't do that apart from Jesus. He is the law of love. In Joshua, I learned, same name as Jesus, but the Hebrew. I learned that Jesus is my savior. He saves me. He saves me from a life of sin. He saves me from death. He gives me eternal life. He is my savior. All the promises are found in Jesus. So we continue through the Bible. I have a word for every one of the books in the Bible so that I can remember what that book is about. But more importantly, I would know who Jesus is. And so we get to the end of the Bible, and what does it say? It's the book of Revelation. What is it revealing? What is it telling us? It's telling us Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus, who is my Christ. What does that word Christ mean? I thought it meant last name for a long time. But it means the anointed one, which is the promised forever king and high priest. Jesus has to be both of those things in my life, that I would have life with him. He has to be my king. 
and he has to be my high priest. God is holy. I do not come before God the Father without Jesus. It's not a good idea. So how can I say that the entire Bible is a revelation, a revealing of who Jesus is? Because Jesus himself said it. In Luke chapter 24, you can turn your Bibles there. We will spend a little bit of time this morning in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44 at the very end of the gospel of Luke. And so Luke chapter 24, verse 44, after Jesus had risen from the grave, he appears to his disciples. He had told them over and over again, I'm going to die. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand. They understood the Messiah, the Christ, the coming king, that he's going to rule and reign, that he wins in the end. Jesus wins. Jesus wins over everything. There's, there's nobody else that's going to win. He is, that is the gospel, that Jesus wins, that my king wins. And so, after he had risen from the grave, they didn't understand. They missed Isaiah 53. They, they, they overlooked that chapter. They overlooked Psalms 22 and many other chapters in the Old Testament. Why? Because we hear what we want to hear. We see what we want to see. I do the same thing sometimes going through the Bible. I don't really see things sometimes because I don't want to deal with them. And so, Jesus here, after he's risen from the grave, he's walking with two guys, and then he says this. Jesus, who is God, then he, sorry, Jesus, who is Jesus, he's God that saved me, he said to them, the disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, most of the rest of the Old Testament, and the Psalms, worship songs. What do they all should do? Point us to Jesus concerning me. God used the Psalms to get the Jews through their time when they were dispersed in exile. It was the book of Psalms, those worship songs, as we sometimes look down on worship, it was the worship songs in Psalms that kept them a Jewish people, kept them united. It was the worship songs. And so, very important, the book of Psalms. And so it says, then he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So we're going to pray again that God would help us to comprehend the Scriptures. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you said you're humble and gentle, and that you'll teach us. So I pray now that you would teach us by your holy word. There's nothing like it in the rest of the world. Lord, I pray you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. There's nothing like it. That you would open our minds to the Scriptures and how they point to you, Jesus. That we would get a clear, just clear definition of who you are and what you want from us. In Jesus' name, amen. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify, give a testimony of me, Jesus, but you are not willing to come to me, Jesus, who is God that saved me, that you may have life. You can memorize the whole Bible, but if you don't know who Jesus is, you don't have eternal life. God made it clear that eternal life is found only in Jesus, only in Jesus. So who is Jesus? Back to the question in Mark 8.29. And he, Jesus, who is God that saved me, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gives an answer. Now, in the other gospel, it says that God the Father gave Peter this answer because he wouldn't have come up with this on his own. 
But Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the promised forever king and high priest. You win. You win. You're the king that wins. Now going back to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 45, why do I need to know who Jesus is? Why do I need to know who Jesus is? And he, who is he? Jesus, who is he? He's God and he saved me. Opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance, repentance means to have a change of mind about a decision or judgment. I once saw the world much different than I see it today. I saw it through my selfishness, through my own ideas of who I thought God was. And as I continue to read through the word of God, I start to learn who God really is, who Jesus really is, and then who I really am. That I'm a wretched, dirty, rotten sinner that deserves the judgment of hell. There is no doubt about it. There's nothing good in me besides Jesus. And so I'm thankful that not only can I change my mind about who Jesus is, because then that changes my actions and changes my life, changes how I see people, changes how I love people, it changes everything. But then there's also remission of sins. That remission could also be translated pardon from sin, freedom from sin, and forgiveness from sin. Speaking of pardons, there was a Supreme Court case many years ago, back in 1915, this guy named Burdick, Versus the United States. The point of the case was to decide, was it legal for a person to reject a presidential pardon? Could somebody do that? If the president pardoned you, could you reject it and say, no, I don't want it? And so here's the quote. Here's what the Supreme Court decided. The pardoned person must accept the pardon. If a pardon is rejected, it cannot be forced upon its subject. A pardon is an act of grace, undeserved, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment the law inflicts for a crime he has committed. So they no longer will get the punishment that they should have got as an act of grace, but it's said they must accept it. If they don't accept it, it cannot be forced upon them. This is the same thing Jesus does. It's the same way they work. They, have, they made a wise decision because that is the gospel of grace. It's the same way. Jesus offers every one of you the same pardon he offered me and everyone else in this world. But you have to individually accept that pardon. It will not be forced on you. He will not force it upon you. You must, out of an act of free will, choose Jesus. He might have chosen you, but you have to choose him. I'll show you through the nation of Israel how it works the same way. They were God's chosen people, but not all of them are in heaven. They had to choose Jesus individually. If you don't believe me, he killed a lot of them. Sometimes he just opened the ground and swallowed them. Priests burned up. They had the wrong kind of fire. And so going back to Luke 24, starting in verse 46, then he, who is he? Jesus, who's Jesus? He's God, and he saved me. Said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, 
and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name, in the name of Jesus, who is the God that saved me, to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses, that's the key, of these things. Behold, I, that's Jesus, send the promise, that's the Holy Spirit, of my Father upon you, upon you, not just in you, upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That power is dynamite power, dynamite power, extreme power. Last week, Pastor Dan taught the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Does anybody remember what it was on? See, what did you learn at church last week? Don't know. Spiritual gifts. It was on spiritual gifts. As I sat and listened to what God was telling me personally, one thing to me stood out above everything else, and that is the reality of the spiritual realm. That the things and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are real. And that the Spirit is greater and more powerful than the physical. The physical does not control or have power over the spiritual. But the spiritual always has power and control over the physical. Why do I say that and why do I absolutely believe it? That the Spirit controls the physical. Because God tells us. In Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's real too. We're going to see him in in a couple days where he loves to show himself, but we believe that Jesus is greater. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the physical. Our battle's not with the physical, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is a spiritual battle. Let's pray now that we would win the battle in the spirit. Lord Jesus, I come to you now. I know because you tell me in the name of Jesus the demons have to flee. I know in the name of Jesus, the devil has to flee. I know there's power in your name. You are the name above all names. There's nothing greater. There's no one greater. You win the victory, Jesus. You win. You win. You are the king. And so now I pray, Lord, against anything that the enemy would do to come against your word, anything it would do from stopping anyone in this room for fully trusting you as their Lord, not just their savior, their Lord, that you would be in control of their life, Lord. Any obstacle that the devil would put in the way, any sin that would keep them from knowing you, right now I ask in the name of Jesus that you would remove it. Amen. This led me to a very important question as I sat and listened about the gifts of the Spirit. What is the purpose of this promised power of the Holy Spirit? God says it's real. He says it's there. For what purpose? Why does God empower people through the Holy Spirit? This dove that's behind me isn't there just because, right? It is a hallmark of what Calvary Chapel is. It stands a lot for what we believe about who God is. So that dove that is behind me represents the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. It is a reminder of when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus When he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. 
why would Jesus be baptized by his cousin? One, so that John would know, the Bible says, that Jesus was truly the Christ in Greek. We know it as the Messiah in Hebrew, that he truly was the king. And two, for the empowering of the ministry work Jesus would do from that day on. So Jesus did no miracles before that. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon him that gave even Jesus the power to go do miracles. And the miracles always point to the message. It's never the other way around. It's the message first, then the miracles. It's not the miracles, then the message. It's always the miracles testifying to who Jesus is. So that dove... As you see it every week, week after week, I pray you would understand what it's there for. It is just there to show us that the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit are real, and we believe them. We believe God is still working. The Gospel of Luke ends there, chapter 24, which you can see because there's no more chapters. And we pick up the story in the book of Acts. You can turn there. We'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 if you want. It all should also be up on the board. All right, so the Gospel of Luke ends. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead on the third day, just like he said he had told the disciples over and over again this is going to happen. They didn't believe him. They didn't want to hear it. There's no way the Messiah is going to die. We don't understand that. But after he died, he rose on the third day, and this is where we pick up the story. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Jesus, who is he? He's God that saved me saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he, Jesus, who is God that saved me, said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but what shall we do? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, not just in you, come upon you, For what reason? What is the reason for the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus speaking himself. And you shall be witnesses to me. Who is me? Jesus. Who is he? He's God that saved me. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is the point of the power of the Holy Spirit? That people would know Jesus. Not for any personal gain, not for any other reason, not so that you can make a name, not so you can be like Benny Hinn and go around and act like you're healing people. I actually believe God did did heal people at some of those things. Not because of that character, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit does work, even if he has to work through a character. And so, the power of the Spirit. Going back to our question, what is the purpose of the power of the gifts of the Spirit? To be a witness of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God that saved me. So going over last week's study, recap so we can remember what the previous week was from. So now we have two weeks memorized. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that Pastor Dan covered last week, which it should be up there. All right. What is the only way someone can call Jesus Lord? Lord doesn't mean Savior. It means supreme in authority to say that Jesus is the supreme authority of my life. I think if you're honest with you, I don't know how often Jesus really is the supreme authority of your life. Me being honest, he's not always. I always come back to that somehow. All right, you're you're right, Lord. I've been trying to do that without you. You're right. I didn't pray about that. That was me, not, not you. But when the Lord is supreme authority of your life, the only way someone can call Jesus Lord is through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the purpose of it. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of a word of wisdom? Because, see, Paul's writing to a church that really existed. It was a carnal church for the most part, like going to Las Vegas and starting a church there. And he clearly says all of these gifts are in existence. He's talking to church people in a church just like we are today about the gifts of the Spirit. He doesn't say they don't exist. He acknowledges that they all exist. And so what's the purpose of giving a person the gift of the word of wisdom? So they can be smart and draw attention to themselves? No. To be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of a word of knowledge? To be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me. I believe these gifts exist because I've seen them in operation. I have a pastor friend out in California who does family ministry. A lady walked in, and a gentleman, and he knew them. They were having problems in their marriage. And so he met with them separate, right, to get the story of what's going on and, you know, how can I minister Jesus to you that you would be able to follow Jesus and get your marriage back on track. And so the woman came in, or actually the man came in first and sits down, and he's like, so what's going on in your marriage? Well, you know, the woman and the woman and the woman. This, this is not an old thing, right? It's always the woman. She's the one that gave the fruit in the garden. It's the woman's fault. He says, well, before you came here, the Lord told me, you've been cheating on your wife, and here's the lady's name. I know the place where you were at when you cheated on. I can tell you it all. And as he laid it out, what's the guy going to say? It's all true. There's no way that pastor knew that. The wife didn't even know. The wife didn't know. So it wasn't the wife telling him. He knew because of a word of knowledge that was given to him. I believe the gifts exist. I've seen them. So they are there, though, to bear witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of faith? To be a witness of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God that saved me. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of healing? To be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me. I believe this gift exists. I went and taught at a small Calvary out in Cuna, Idaho. Probably had 30 people there. Um, And because it's smaller, they could do prayer time. So they would stand up and say, hey, what what do you have, Sarah? What's your prayer request today, Betty? what What do you have? Does anybody have a praise report, right? And sitting in the midst of 30 people, There was at least three people that had been healed of cancer. Three people out of 30 in there that had been healed of cancer that stood up and gave the glory to Jesus and said, Jesus healed me. I have no doubt that the gift is real. Now, it's not given to someone to use for whatever purpose. It's given to give a witness to who Jesus is. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of working miracles? To be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me. Why does the Holy Spirit give the gift of prophecy, which we'll go over today, to be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me? Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of discerning of spirits, to be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me? Two more. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of different kind of tongues, to be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me? When tongues was first mentioned in the Bible, which is the principle of first mention, when God defines something, he does it the first time he mentions a word. It's how we study the Bible. 
And so the first time that the gift of tongues is given that we know of, they are speaking known languages. They say they're speaking the great things of God in my own language. They heard it in their own language. It's not a bunch of gibberish that nobody understands. The purpose of the gift of tongues is to be a witness for Jesus, who is God who saved me. Why does someone give the person a gift, or why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of interpretation of tongues? To be a witness of Jesus, who is God that saved me. I sat in a four-square church. I used to be in four-square denomination years ago, and um, you know, I wasn't so sure about these gifts of the Spirit, to be honest with you. Some of them, I'm like, I don't know. That is weird. But I did see it in there. A person stood up in this big church, probably 1,500 people there, and this person stood up on this side of the sanctuary, spoke in a, in a language. Didn't sound like a bunch of gibberish to me. So now I thought, oh, this is going to be good. right? Because I know the Bible says that somebody has to interpret that now or that person needs to be escorted out, right? Because they're not speaking in the right spirit. And so the person on the other side of the sanctuary stood up and just gave this awesome testimony about the greatness of Jesus. And I thought, hmm, now that's real. That's real. That's how it is to be done. It wasn't a whole bunch of people acting crazy. So we're going to focus the rest of our time on the gift of prophecy. Why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of prophecy? Well, God tells us. Right? Questions are for a reason. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, And I, the apostle John, fell at his feet, that's an angel, to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. So angels are servants. And of your brethren, who have the testimony of Jesus. The angel's job, to give a testimony to Jesus. Worship God, he says. Worship God alone. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what testimony? What's my testimony in Jesus? What's every born-again believer's testimony in Jesus? What do we testify about him? Well, the Lord tells us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Every born-again believer finds their rest in Jesus. They had no rest before Jesus. They had no peace with God before Jesus. They had no hope after death before Jesus. They had no hope that they were going to overcome their sin Without Jesus. If you think you can, stop lying. So I pray when you go to lie again, even a little lie, you'll be reminded that you're a liar and you don't stop lying on your own. If you could, go ahead and try it. I can tell you without Jesus, you will not. Jesus goes on to tell us in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Everybody's testimony, no matter how many drugs or how many women they were with or how many people they beat or whatever it might be, it comes back to they didn't have peace with God. It has nothing to do with all the rest of that stuff. All the rest of that stuff is a symptom of the fact that they don't have peace with God. That only comes through Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. 
He who is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. If you're not working with me, you're working against me. He who does not gather with me, come to me, scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. You cannot be forgiven if you do not accept Jesus as your Lord. The Holy Spirit's job is to testify to who Jesus is. That's what we've been going over. Its job is to testify to who Jesus is. You can reject him and reject him and reject him. But if you do, there's no more forgiveness for sins. He's already forgiven all your sins. That's not the problem. Sin is not your problem. It's unbelief. If you don't believe in Jesus, you, are, you will die in your sins, the Bible says. So why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of prophecy? To be a witness of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God, and he saved me. What does, the, what does God tell us to do with the gifts of the Spirit, including Bible prophecy? Well, we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. What are we to do with this power of the Holy Spirit that we are to give a testimony to Jesus? But how does that work out? How does this testimony thing work out? He says, be at peace among yourselves. It starts there. Be at peace among yourselves. Purpose of the Holy Spirit, be at peace. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Those are acting crazy. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. That's not always easy. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. That's my natural reaction in the flesh. Always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Now, we sometimes struggle to know the will of God. The will of God is not overly complicated. It's not for you to go out and do amazing things and, and be Billy Graham and you know draw all these people to Jesus. This is what he says the will of God is. Not me speaking, this is God. Rejoice always. Go ahead and try that. Rejoice always. The will of God is that you would rejoice always. It says, pray without ceasing. The will of God for you is to pray without ceasing. That's not easy to do. The will of God is to give in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. If I just got diagnosed with cancer, I'm to give thanks. God is doing a work, as Anthony taught on Wednesday, There's a reason for it. God is doing a work in my life that he couldn't do another way, if that's the case. So give thanks for it. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for me. Then it goes on to say, but don't quench the Holy Spirit. See, even being in Calvary, because I've seen a lot of craziness in some of the other churches I've been in that I wasn't so sure was real, I tend to quench the Holy Spirit. My, My... tendency is not to trust that. My tendency is to think people are liars and it's fake. But the Bible clearly says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what changed my mind. There is a verse, I don't know it off the top of my head, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, was going around. He's got an headband and an apron around him, okay? It's the Middle East. He's hot. He's sweating. And it says that when people came, not to Paul, but to the touch the sweaty headband and the sweaty apron, they were healed. Clearly, some power. If you were to tell me that today, I would say, stay away from that church. Stay away from that voodoo stuff that they're doing down at that church. That is craziness. So the Lord reminding me, oh, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. There's a lot of things people are saying today. I don't believe them. But they're 
don't despise them because God gave us prophecy. Most of the Bible is prophecy. So we got to believe it. It says, test all things, though. I should test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace, which is what the testimony is, himself, God of peace himself, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all the stuff that's going on out in the land of Israel, the whole world knows now. I have relatives that I know don't know the Lord. They're like, what is going on? Global jihad, is, is, is this real? Jeremy, tell me, like, what, what does the Bible say about the global jihad? And all these people want to rise up like they're scared. Right? But that's not what God wants. God wants you to be at peace. He wins. He wins. And so what's going on in the world? What, what is all this? The Bible tells us the future before it happens. He's the only one. So why does the Holy Spirit give a person the gift of prophecy? To be a witness of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God and he saved me. All right, please open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. We will spend the rest of our time together going over the gift of prophecy that was given to Ezekiel, a real person like me and you, by the Holy Spirit. The gift of prophecy played out in real life, not on a Bible page. This is real stuff. It really happened. He really said these things. Before I do, though, before we get into Ezekiel 37, we'll see how much time we have, I want to give you a quick history lesson so that we can understand the context. It's hard to pick up in the middle of a prophecy. That's quite amazing, beyond amazing, actually. So this is a history lesson based on the account that God himself gave us, according to his word. The Godhead, which includes God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they created the world, according to the Bible, about 6,000 years ago. God gave man a free will. He said, you can live forever, or you can eat from that one tree over there, the knowledge of good and evil, and you will die. They had a choice to make. One thing that they couldn't do. So don't tell me God's overbearing, he has all these rules. No, there's there's one rule still today. Come to Jesus, you have eternal life. Reject Jesus, you do not. Same choice Adam and Eve had Back in the garden. One rule. So, of course, they chose wrong. They were, Eve was deceived. Adam just transgressed. He eats from the tree. Death enters the world, both physically, but more importantly, spiritually. There's no more eternal life. People are not going to live forever until God, since that time, has been dealing with man and their sin. And how do I get people back to eternal life? How can I give them eternal life even though they're sinners? That's what the whole rest of God's plan, that's what the Bible describes for the thousands of pages that we read. That is the story. God bringing people back to eternal life with him. All right, so we sin. He's patient with them for about 2,000 years until only eight people are left on this planet that have not rejected Jesus as Lord. Everybody else in the world, besides eight people, had rejected Jesus as Lord. That's what they're going to be judged for. Noah and his family, they build this boat. They get on the boat. He'd been telling them, get on the boat. Oh, it's never going to rain. We haven't seen rain. What are you talking about? There's no rain. Well, when it started raining, I bet people started thinking, hmm, maybe that old crazy kook is up to something, wasting his whole life building a boat. Well, that boat saved his life. And saved him. And so God restarts 
this relationship with mankind again from one family named Noah. Well, that doesn't take long because Noah's drunk not, not too long later, right? And back to a life of sin. All right, so mankind again turns against God and they reject him. It's not the lying, it's not the cheating, it's not the stealing, it's not that that's going to send you to hell. It's your unbelief. He's paid the price for all that stuff. And so mankind again turns against God. We get to this Tower of Babel. God confuses their languages. Now they can only t- communicate with the people that speak the same language as them. So God spreads them out throughout the world because now you're going to go with whatever group that you can communicate with. And so they're spread throughout the world. And then in Genesis chapter 12, which there are certain chapters of the Bible that, that, that you should know. This is one of them. Genesis chapter 12, around 2000 BC, 2000 years before Jesus, God makes a covenant agreement with a man named Abram who becomes Abraham. God tells him, leave your homeland, leave everything you know. That's what Jesus asked us to do too. Leave your homeland, leave everything else, and go to a land that I will show you. So that land and these people, these people will be known as the Jewish people. This land will be known as the land of Israel. And then he says, I will make you into a great nation, a powerful nation. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. But all the people of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. How? Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes from Abraham. That's how the whole world is blessed through Abraham. The Jewish people enter. They take possession of the promised land, which is the land of Israel, as we know it today. Not quite the amount. They have very little of the land they were supposed to take over. The land of Israel, or the nation of Israel, starts with the God as their king. They start out pretty good. But then about 1000 BC, the people of Israel demand an earthly king. We want to be like everyone else. Give us an earthly king. What a terrible decision. God appoints a man named Saul. Perfect guy. Handsome. A foot taller than everyone else. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's what the Antichrist is going to seem like when he comes here soon. And so he's what the world would pick. But his problem is he refuses to have Jesus as his Lord. He refuses to let Jesus be Lord of his life personally. And so the Lord says, I'm sorry. I'm taking the kingdom away from you. I'm giving it to someone else. He gives it to this young man named David. And then another chapter of your Bible that you should know as you study, 2 Samuel chapter 7. See, if we get all the way to Jesus in the Gospels, we've missed a lot of who Jesus is and how amazing who he really is is. And so David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to David, he says, I know you want to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. From your family line will come a forever kingdom with the forever king known as the Christ or the Messiah. And David doesn't even know what to say. It's the one time David was speechless in his whole life. He was a talker, like my youngest son. But for once, he was speechless. And so, he says, there's going to become this everlasting kingdom. So then, this the kingdom's united at that point. There's 12 tribes. All, five, all 12 tribes are united as one in the land of Israel. King Solomon comes to power. He builds this glorious temple for God where God's presence is going to dwell amongst men. It's why that is the most holy place, the most set-apart place in the entire world. It still is. Go try to take a Bible onto the Temple Mount and see what happens. You will have guns in your face, and you will be escorted out of there within seconds. Go ahead and mention the name Jesus. 
up on that temple mount and, I mean, even mouth it. You don't even have to say it out loud. You will be escorted off that temple mount. It is by far the most disputed piece of land, this little teeny few acres of land on top of a hill in the middle of the world is so important. Why? Because Jesus. Because he's going to rule and reign as king from there. He is the high priest that will be high priest there. And so, got the temple mount built there, and then Solomon's son comes, Rehoboam. He, um, he decides to tax the people, overtax the people. Maybe Biden should take a lesson. You decide to overtax the people, they will rebel against you. So, ten tribes rebel against Rehoboam and his high taxes. They say, no way, we're not having this. They become known as the northern kingdom of Israel, which Ephraim is the lead tribe. Then in the southern kingdom, you have Judah, and he's the lead tribe there. But most importantly, that is where Jerusalem is, and that is where the temple is in the southern kingdom of Judah. There's a civil war between the two kingdoms. They're obviously at war with each other until around 722 B.C., when the Assyrian Empire rises to power, they come into Samaria, which is the capital. They take the people, exile. They do leave some in the land. And there was about one million Jewish people in those ten tribes that were escorted out of the land and taken over by the Assyrians. Fast forward about 100 years to 605 BC, and the Babylonian Empire rises to power, and they begin to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. It is during this time in 605 that Daniel, the prophet, is taken with the royal family to Babylon. The second wave, which happens in 597 BC, Ezekiel, the prophet, and the middle class people are carried off to Babylon. At the same time, Jeremiah, the prophet, is left in the land. Okay, so he'll, he'll write his prophecies from the land of Jerusalem. Ezekiel will be in the middle class, the working folk people, and Daniel will be among the royalty. And that's where we get all these prophecies. And so in, five, um, in 587, 586 BC, the Babylonians take Jerusalem, they destroy the first temple, they burn down the city, and based on the census from the Bible, there's about half a million people. So 1.5 million people definitely in the land because the Bible says so. Okay? Now, all of them are out of there for the most part. There's, there's only a remnant left. Okay, it's during this time that we get the prophecies of Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. Then about 70 years later, in around 538, 537 B.C., the Persian Empire, which are the Iranians today, they loved Israel. They hate them today. Death to Israel and death to America, they're what causing all the trouble we have today over in Israel. The Persian Empire, Iran today, had risen to power, and they allowed the Jewish people who were in exile in Babylon to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. We read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what we're reading about. According to the Bible, only about 50,000 Jewish people out of at least a million and a half returned during that time. While the population of the Jewish people in Israel returned to an estimated millions by the time of Jesus, it wasn't too long after Jesus that around 70 AD that Jerusalem and the second temple were destroyed and the Jewish people were dispersed across the entire world. For 2,000 years, they've been dispersed throughout the entire world. What we're going to read, matter of fact, even during the 1500s, it's estimated that there was only 5,000 Jews left in the land of Israel. That makes up less than 2% of the population that was still there. And so, it's not until the Holocaust and the start of World War II that God puts it in the heart of the Jewish people to return to their land. What a time to start returning to the land. 
before the beginning of World War II and the Holocaust, God puts it in these people's minds to return to this land, and they start to do it. But it's not till 1948, when Israel declares itself a nation, that the population in Israel was more Jewish than it was Gentile. So for 2,000 years, what I'm going to read to you in Ezekiel, Bible scholars for thousands of years, because you can go look it up in commentaries, believed Ezekiel 37 wasn't literal. It wasn't literal. It seems very literal when we're going to read through this. But they said it wasn't literal. Because why? Because Israel was not in their land. Israel did not exist as a nation. So the Bible's wrong. God's wrong. I shouldn't trust it. I don't care if you talk to me about Jesus Christ. Because it's, it lies. It's not real. So what did we do? We try to help God out. Well, we'll spiritualize it. Israel will be the church. You can find a whole bunch of re- replacement theology. It's not a little thing. It's been there for thousands of years. And it still exists today. It's absolutely a lie, but nonetheless, it's there. We have the advantage today in the day that we live since 1948, knowing that in 2020, when President Trump was president, when he made the, moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, it was at that point that there was more Jewish people in the land of Israel than in the rest of the world. They have returned to their land. If you cannot get excited about what we're about to read that was written 2,500 years ago about what's going on on cameras in front of our eyes today, I don't, know what, I don't know what to do. Like, it is beyond amazing. It proves that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's coming back. It's not a fear. I don't fear. I look forward. Lord, you're coming. I know because the people are back in the land exactly like, Israel, like, like Ezekiel told us 2,500 years ago. So we'll read through it. I want you to focus on where it says 60 times in the book of Ezekiel, they will know that I am the Lord. What's the point of Bible prophecy? That they will know that I am the Lord, that they will know that Jesus is Lord. He is the supreme authority. Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to be a little long. I'm never short, so chapter, verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me. Who's that? That's the prophet Ezekiel, a real person like me and you. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, the gifts of the Spirit, and sat me down in the midst of a valley. It was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were many, very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. Okay, some some dry bones sitting in a valley. Interesting. And he said to me, Son of Man, which is a thing, a name for Jesus, just so you know, it's, it's mentioned in the New Testament, pointing to Jesus, Son of Man, Can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy the gift of prophecy to these bones. What, Lord? Prophesy to bones? Sounds dumb. Just do it, Ezekiel. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Bones are going to hear the Bible. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. God breathed breath into Adam when he came alive. He also breathed into the disciples in the Gospel of John, and they received the Holy Spirit. That was before the empowering of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. Jesus breathed on them. They received the Holy Spirit, lambano in the Greek. They seemed to be born again then. Then the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. Surely I will cause breath, the spirit of life, to enter into you, and you shall live. 
I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Why does people, why are people born again? As a testimony to who Jesus Christ is. The greatest miracle that God's ever performed is somebody being born again of the Holy Spirit. It is the ultimate testimony because no matter what Bible verse you point me to, I don't care what you say. I know that I'm born again of the Holy Spirit and I know God did it. There's no way you can take away my testimony. It's true. So I prophesied the gift of the Spirit and I was commanded and I prophesied. And there was a noise, and suddenly the rattling. I mean, he's got to get excited now. And the bones come together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. That's where we sit today. Israel is back in that land, like Ezekiel said, after the Holocaust, after they were dead all over the world, these bones dead all over the world, they were brought back to this land, but they are not alive spiritually. Go over there. They're not alive spiritually at all. We're waiting for that. But we've seen them return physically. Again, the spiritual is more important, though. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. This is still to come. It's going to happen. God always does what he says he's going to do. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are who? We don't have to guess. We don't have to spiritualize it. We don't have to change the word of God. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Directly from God. They indeed say our bones are dry. Our hope is lost and we ourselves are cut off. He's writing as he sits in Babylon, occupied by some, you know, force that he doesn't want to be there. And he says, we have no hope. Our hope is lost. Without Jesus, our hope is lost. We are cut off from God, just like these people. But then what does he say? He says, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The reason for prophecy, you shall know that Jesus is God, that he is Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph and the stick of Ephraim and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Remember, they were split into two kingdoms. But he's saying, now we're going to bring you back together as one nation. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick and they will become one in your hand, the physical pointing to the spiritual. And when the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by this? Say to them, thus says the Lord, Jesus speaking, God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companion, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make one stick, and they will be, they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And say to them, thus says the Lord God, 
Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone. Like they're in Babylon, not scattered throughout the world. And this is way later than he's writing, but they were exactly this. Scattered throughout the world. I will take Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation. What are they? They're one nation today. In the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king, that's Jesus, shall be king over them all. That hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. It's coming soon. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. That's what Jesus does with our lives. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, pointing to Jesus, shall be king. That's Jesus, not not David. Over them, and they shall have one shepherd, Jesus. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land physically that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there. They, their children, and their children's children. For how long? Forever. They're not losing any war. They're not losing. Jesus wins. My servant David shall be their prince forever. That's Jesus. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's what our testimony is. That's what his testimony with them is, a covenant of peace. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Go over to Israel today. You can see pictures. They have the big lampstand that used to be in the temple, or it was destroyed, but they built a new one. It's out there in the major courtyard there in Jerusalem, worth millions of dollars. It sits in a case made of pure hammered gold, and they're going to put that back in the temple. They have all of the priestly garments ready. They have the showbread plates all ready to go. We just sent six red heifers from Texas over there. They need a red heifer, perfectly red cow. Going to have no other color hair but red. Why? Because it's from that heifer's ashes that they sanctify the temple that they sanctify the priests. And so we see all of these things getting ready. Again, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know it's coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And so they're going to build that temple. Matter of fact, the Antichrist seems to have a part in it. The nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctified Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So what is going on in the world is what Ezekiel told us. They were not one people. If you had watched the news, Israel was at a civil war again. All this thing about the judges and, and you know, who, who's allowed on the Supreme Court. Can the Supreme Court overturn the rules of the prime minister? They were fighting amongst each other. They were also living in very pagan ways down in certain areas of the country. So it's not a shock that God stirred them up. I cannot for a second believe the Israeli people have censors in the ground, Okay. They know there's tunnels down there. They've destroyed them. They have sensors everywhere. They have the best spy agency in the world. The Mossad is unprecedented. There's nothing like it. They are a brilliant people gifted by God. So you're going to tell me they knew nothing about Hamas coming in there? I don't believe it. The only way I can believe that they knew nothing is God purposely blinded them. Purposely blinded them for the purpose of bringing them 
together. You guys cannot be fighting amongst each other. You, you got enough problems coming. You cannot be fighting amongst each other. I do not believe what's going on today is the same as Ezekiel 38, which we don't have time for because the nations aren't all right and it's not all right, but it's a predecessor to it. COVID is a predecessor to the rise of the Antichrist. You can see it. One world government following one world leader, even the king of England about a year ago stood to the UN and says there's going to be a rise of a person that has more GDP than the entire world combined. It's time for the, for the, for the governments of the world to unite under this one person. Why would the king of England say that? You can go download the transcript. I'll even post it out on Facebook for you that are friends. Again, so you can see. Jesus is coming back. And so, we'll close with this. God promised that he's going to bring judgment. Anybody that rejects him, we've seen it over and over again, you will die in your sins. So then what must I do to be born again? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the supreme authority, the God who saved me, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, his righteousness, not ours. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So can I do this privately? Can I do it in the private and see in my heart? I believe in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives us an answer. Jesus speaking, the God who saved me. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I believe that you must at some point in your life make a public confession. Even the guy on the cross, who everybody likes to point to, well, he wasn't baptized and he wasn't this and he wasn't that. On the cross, he did the one thing that was required. He gave a testimony to who Jesus Christ was to the thief next to him and says, you better believe him. I believe. You need to believe him. We're guilty. We're sinners. He's not. You need to put your faith in this man. He publicly, even on the cross, gave a testimony to who Jesus was. And so we can't privately, just quietly, it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit loves to speak a testimony of Jesus. Then in James chapter 1, or actually in Acts chapter 8, verse 17, it says, When the apostles were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they had heard just like you guys did right now. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as of yet, he had fallen upon none of them, They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Baptism doesn't save anybody. It is a physical thing that can have a spiritual reality, but it doesn't save anybody. I've seen and baptized the same person more than once because they think it's going to save their marriage. They think it's going to give them more power in their life. They think that they're going to get closer to God. But that's not what saves them. What saves them is receiving, Lambano, the Holy Spirit. So I am going to pray. I do ask Jonah to come back up and any other elders that are in the room, Anthony, if you want. But I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you an opportunity. If there's anybody here that has never publicly confessed Jesus or has never believed that they've received the Holy Spirit, without a doubt that they know that they're born again, I'm going to ask you to come up here. And 
me and Jonah and whoever else will lay hands on you and we'll pray that you would receive the Holy Spirit. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. All right, so I'll, I'll pray, and if anybody's led by God, I don't want fake stuff. I don't believe in playing church. I don't believe in doing fake things. Either the Spirit's moving or he's not. My job is to be faithful to the Holy Spirit, give you the Word of God, give you an opportunity publicly to confess Jesus. The rest is up to you individually. But if you do reject him, there's quite a consequence. Lord Jesus, I come now, Lord, and I pray if there's any people that you put in their hearts today that have never received the Holy Spirit that aren't born again of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that don't know you as Lord, that they would come forward now, that they would make a public confession and say, I'm choosing today to say that I believe in Jesus. I'm choosing eternal life. I no longer want to eat from that tree of death of the knowledge of good and evil. I've got enough of that. I want to receive Jesus. I want eternal life that you offer, Jesus. And that they would simply take a step of faith, that they would be doers of the word and get out of their seat and come forward and receive you, Lord. And so, Lord, you know. You know each person in here. I know there's people in here that don't have a personal relationship with you, Lord. And so, Lord, you're giving them an opportunity. I pray that they would come, Lord. That they would come forward now. And if not, Lord, I pray that you entrust that you know every one of them. You know where they're at. And maybe today isn't the day, even though you tell me the day, today is the day of salvation. Lord, may they not delay any longer. They put it off a long time, Lord. So, If today is the day that they would come. And so, Lord, we praise you. Thank you that you are the God who saved us. You are the God that saved us. Lord, I pray as we leave today that we would know that you are the God who saved us. All right. So nobody came forward, but you can come forward after. We had people come after too. Um, So a few things. We want to be doers of the word. James chapter 1 verse 22 says this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. You see how bad you are. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. There was that conviction that we're sinners, but then we just hear the word and go about our lives. So three opportunities as Jonah spoke this week to see the power of the Holy Spirit work. First one, light in the night. Come out. The devil wants to win. I know that Jesus has victory. We're going to see the power of the Holy Spirit work. And children out there, we're not out there just to hand out candy. We're out there to be a witness for Jesus, to speak for Jesus, that these kids and their families would know Jesus. Next Sunday, after second service, for those of you, um, we're going to pray for the international church that's being persecuted. We have it very easy in this country still to this day. Many of them don't. And so we're going to pray. So come, pray. It doesn't hurt you. We're going to gather together as a church. We're going to get into groups. We have lists of things we're going to pray for, and we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to work in the persecuted church to be a witness for Jesus. And lastly, Wednesday night, I was going to do this this Sunday. I then spoke to Pastor Dan through the elders, and he said, well, Pastor Dan already plans to do it on Wednesday because we know that the Holy Spirit wants to do a work. I did pray for a man at our last fellowship. He was dying of cancer, given days to live. Hospice was there, and I said, I don't believe you're going to die. We had a lady come to our small Bible study group, and she says, Jeremy, out of all the years, I do not believe he's going to die of cancer at this time. She says, I'm not saying that he's not going to, but I just, I just don't believe it. I don't believe he's going to die of cancer. So we prayed over him. We anointed him with oil, and he lives cancer-free. 
And so the Lord works. The Lord's work, and he wants to work. But he wants it to be a public testimony of who he is. That's what the gift of healing is for. So if you are sick, we want to do what it says on Wednesday, this Wednesday, 6.30, time of prayer and praise, what James says in chapter 5, verse 14. If anyone among you, is there anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, and the prayer of faith, another gift of the Spirit, will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, because that's the greatest healing, knowing that we have eternal life. So even if we did die of cancer, right, we have all of eternity with the Lord. It's the best thing that will ever happen, honestly. It's the greatest thing that will ever happen. As we leave this world, it is the best thing that happens in a believer's life. There is no greater event. And so let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that your word went forth today. I know that it won't return void, not because I'm anything, Lord, because you promised. You promised, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. We want to do what you say. We don't want to just live in this world and play church and play nice and pretend like we're good people because we're not, Lord. We're all sinners. And we desperately need you. So work through our lives. I pray today that you would bless everyone here. I pray you would protect them as we go about our week, Lord. Protect them by the power of your Holy Spirit. I do pray that you would show us mercy as we go about our week. We would see how sinful we are and we would see your amazing grace and mercy upon our lives. Lord, I do pray that you would shower your kindness and your goodness upon us because that is what leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Lord, we'll take every blessing you want to give. We want to be under the spout where the blessings pour out. And then, Lord, we pray for peace. It is the testimony of every born-again believer. Give us peace, a peace the world cannot give. This world is in chaos. It's in disorder. There's no hope in this world, but there is in you, Jesus. May we be a light to tell people about Jesus, who you really are, the God who saved each one of us. Amen.